0: Well, we've been studying the uh, life of Abraham early on to see how God's first dealings with his uh, people were by way of covenant, confirmed by various signs and seals, and what that has to do with us. I was a little loath to go on in that regular uh, line with so many traveling and other things going on this weekend, and so I thought that we would have a different kind of study in the uh, life of Abraham. It was promised to him that in his seed, all the earth and all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And I thought I would take a variation of that and consider what that has meant to the world even to this day. If you'd like to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, I think I'm only going to read a single verse to get us started, one that will frame our uh, study. Again, this is not an expositional sermon, just so you understand, but a bigger reflection on the work of Christ and in coming into the world and fulfilling that promise to Abraham. Let's read now from Genesis 3, verse 16. Well, we'll go, we'll go for, uh, for uh, 15 for context. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we too who have come to flee for refuge to Christ and are therefore accounted also as seed of Abraham, that We, too, would understand more and more of what you have done in the world, fulfilling your promises, remembering that word to the seed of Abraham that you fulfilled uh, in uh, our Lord Jesus' coming. And we pray that uh, we, too, would uh, recognize our fulfillment in that greater calling in the world, in Him. It's in Him that we pray. Amen. One of my family's favorite movies to watch this time of year, I hope that you've seen it too, because I'll be giving a couple of spoilers in a moment, is Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey, a man who all of his life has put the needs of others ahead of his own. But at the climax of the film, George Bailey's life comes crashing down around him as he faces bankruptcy and arrest Because of a mistake at the savings and loan that he manages, in desperation, he plans to kill himself, uh, reasoning that his family would be better provided, uh, receiving his life insurance. But it's at this point, an answer to the prayers of George's many friends, that this guardian angel, named Clarence, comes to help him. And to teach George the value of his life, the angel, Clarence, shows him what would it be like if George had never been born. Well, it turns out his little brother, a World War II hero, would have drowned as a child because George wasn't there to save him. And without the savings and loan, many of the families in town would never have been able to purchase their own homes, and the town itself would be quite different. George's eccentric but loving uncle would have spent his life in a loony bin because George was not there to believe in him. The pharmacist who Worked, uh, who, whom uh, George worked for, uh, would be in jail because George once prevented him from accidentally poisoning a sixth child. Well, the movie illustrates, you see, the the blessing and the potential of a human life and what one person can do to be a blessing and make a difference in the world. It's a very touching movie, but of course, besides leaving with warm feelings, there's nothing else there as it's just a made-up story. Today, I would like to consider the difference that one real individual has made in our world, a change that is not to be compared to that of George Bailey. God made a promise to Abraham so many years ago, saying that in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And interestingly, in English... Greek and Hebrew, that word seed could be singular, like a seed that you hold in your hand, or it could be a collective noun, like I went to the store and bought seed. You don't mean you bought a single seed, you mean you bought a big bag to go and spread on the uh, new earth that you've turned over or something like that. Well, in this passage that I read to you, uh, it's in the midst of a somewhat complicated argument where uh, Paul explains how that promise was actually given to one seed, namely Jesus, but to all of us who have found ourselves in him by faith. So it does apply to Jesus. It does apply to us. And this one seed of Abraham has made all the difference in the world napoleon once said i search in vain in history to find one similar to jesus christ or anything which can approach the gospel nations pass away thrones crumble but the church remains indeed there are more than 1.8 billion professing believers in him found in most of the nations of the earth at least and as Phillips Brooks put it in his popular prose, all of the armies that have ever marched, all the natives that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life, the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'd like to think with you today about, how that one solitary life has changed the whole world. Obviously, it's changed our calendar as we're about to go into 2023, uh, dated at least supposedly from Christ's birth. Uh, Dionysius Exiguus made a little math error. It's uh, about four years off. But we do date everything BC, that is before Christ, or AD, standing for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord somebody uh, commented uh, by saying that Jesus has turned aside the river of ages out of its course and has lifted the centuries off their hinges. Just by his birth, he has changed time forever. So he has. In her anthology of literature, author Cynthia Pearl Mouse said, quote, many poems have been written excuse me, more poems have been written, more stories told, more pictures painted, and more songs sung about Christ than any other person in human history, because through such avenues as these, the deepest appreciation of the human heart can be most adequately expressed, end quote. So, uh, well, wherever we look, be it uh, history, architecture, law, or medicine, I could go on, (laughs) <laughs> the world has profoundly changed by the coming of Jesus. But this evening, I'd like us to even think bigger. Yes, bigger than that. I'd like us to consider how, the, how Christ's coming changed the world. To think, what would it have been like if Jesus had never been born, like George Bailey? But uh, I don't have to make any suppose or what if. All we have to do is go back just before Jesus was born and see what kind of world he was born in and to see what kind of world was produced by his coming. The seed of Abraham has already begun to change nations, and has changed nations so profoundly in ways that we just take for granted. Well, I will not be able to explain to you uh, all the ins and the outs, but something of the scope of that I want to put before you, and to begin with the most important thing, Christ has changed the way that we know God. Christ has changed the way that we know God. Art and music, law and medicine, fine, good in their own way. But how we know God, what we know about God, what we think about God, as one author said, is the most important thing about us. So we will start there. Before Christ, religion was about faraway gods. That is to say, the Greeks and the Romans and the peoples of the ancient world, they had a great many gods and demigods and other beings who were kind of quasi-divine. In fact, there were so many gods in that ancient world, but you'd expect them to be everywhere and you'd be tripping over them. But that was, of course, not the case. Any even reported contact with any of the gods was extremely rare. They had stories or mythologies of what the gods had done, but all of that seemed a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, actually, by the time Jesus was born, many of the philosophers were very skeptical of the gods. The Stoics, for example, taught that if gods exist, they certainly are not in this realm. They, they are there, and we are here, and they don't care anything about us. But as you know, something very fundamentally new and important happened. When Jesus came into the world, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This was a a new experience. Suddenly it wasn't about God's out there or some stories about some strange place and some strange time far away. Suddenly God was right here. And I emphasize that this morning as Peter says, we beheld We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, or John began his first letter. We've seen with our eyes and our hands have handled the word of life. I mean, it was that earthy. We had Jesus in our sweaty palms. Our hands have handled him. He began his gospel. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. We beheld his glory. There was a total revolution in the world of that day when God was right here, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. God, God is not a noble. God is not far away. God has gone to the infinite lengths of making Himself known to us by descending way, way down even to a manger that we might behold our God. And so, when we read the Gospels, we don't have to wonder what God is like. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. We find the character and attributes of God himself continually on display in the most concrete, tangible, dramatic ways. This is no unknown God. This is no, I wonder what he is like. We see God's compassion and sympathy and power on display as he heals a beggar, as he raises a widow's son from the dead and so forth. Here is your God. This is what God is like. Christians are not preaching theories or theologies about these things merely. We're not preaching abstract attributes or perfections. The Greeks had some idea of abstract attributes of God. But uh, in Christianity, we see that there is no attribute outside of God himself. And here is Jesus in a way that even the smallest child can understand. This is the nature of God. We see love illustrated and communicated in astonishing ways. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth In all these things, Jesus has brought God very much home to us, taking real life form that God is graspable and personable in a whole new way. So they said to the world, here he is. If you want to know God, you can't just believe certain truths about him or say certain prayers to him. You have to come and know him, God is isn't impersonal. He is not distant. He is not removed from daily life and experience. He is not far far away. He is with us. And because God is love, writes one historian, God has reached out to humanity by extending himself into the created world and the human realm forever. And so now, like never before, the world can know God personally. Christianity has redefined the way that humans know God. God. Well, again, I think that's obvious to us, but to the world, they had never seen anything like that. Second, Christ changed the way that we understand salvation. Salvation. Again, I think we take this for granted, but follow along. One scholar writes before Christianity, religion was a service contract. Some of you have service contract on your uh, heaters or your washing machines or something like that, right? Uh, you uh, pay a certain amount. You do a certain uh, um, uh, co- contract uh, every, every year to, uh, to maintain it, uh, and they'll do something for you. Well, he writes, for the most part, ancient religion entailed people serving various gods, usually by ritual sacrifice, so that the gods would protect people or grant them blessings. In effect, doing whatever it was believed would coax or motivate the gods to do the people's will. That was religion. And when when you wanted salvation from the ancient gods, which was a very important part of ancient religion, what you meant was avoiding catastrophes, earthquakes, invasions, Salvation was divine protection. Salvation generally had nothing to do with what happened to you after death. I mean, the ancients believed in an afterlife, and some ancients hoped to be reunited with their dead ancestors, and the mystery religions promised more. There was some variety. Basically, they didn't know about the, ancient, uh, the afterlife very much. They had to confess a lot of ignorance. But basically, what you wanted from God and how you got that was a service contract. Christianity revolutionized the whole idea of salvation. When he was born, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That what people need most is not protection or prosperity. In fact, they need to be delivered from that very pleasure-seeking approach To life. What people really need is to be forgiven, cleansed, restored, and reconciled to God Himself. Not just saved from, but saved to. People keep thinking today that if God were good, He would protect us from all pain and loss, the problem of evil, and so forth. Well, Christianity announces God has come to share in those things in order that He might deliver us from them. That's our answer to the problem. God has come in in the flesh to drink into Himself all that is against us, sin, misery, death itself, the, the pains of judgment, and to quench that consuming fire in His own dear, precious blood. We needed his life to replace our spiritual deadness. We needed his light to replace our worldly darkness. We needed his goodness and beauty to break our addiction to everything that enslaved us and brought us and everyone we know in the whole ancient world into ruin and misery. And Christians announced to the world that although sinners await the just judgment of God, a great judgment soon to come to all, that Christ has brought a whole new hope for humanity. God and sinners reconciled. All that can go under the name of salvation in the general sense. A man has now overcome sin, misery, death, and judgment, and risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Uh, Nothing like this had ever been thought of in the ancient world. This was not religion. Uh, This was not salvation. This is what people didn't even think that they needed. In fact... People were offended at the suggestion that they needed this kind of salvation. It didn't go over well in many cases. You know, some gifts are hard to receive. I've, I've given you the illustration before about how some gifts are hard and you have to swallow your pride. I mean, you, you open a present from a good friend and, oh, it's a dieting book. And then you open another present from the friend and it's another book called Overcoming Selfishness. And uh, what do you say to your former friend? Do you say, thank you so much? To do so would be to admit, you think I'm an obnoxious fatso. Um, Some gifts are hard to receive, even if we need them. And, well, some gifts make you swallow your pride. There has never been a gift so great as Jesus, and there has never been a gift that makes you swallow your pride as much as Jesus'. The gospel says I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people for there's just, there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior? You think I'm in need of rescuing? Are you saying I'm in s- some kind of a sin problem? Are you saying that God's going to judge me? Are you saying that there's nothing I can do but be Saved by this one bringing me mercy and grace? Are you saying I need to receive uh, a salvation with a new heart and a new spirit, which basically means giving up control of my life? Well, that is the nature of the gift, all this and much more. And yes, you're to say thank you. Anything less, if anything less were required, the Lord of glory would not be born into such misery and die for us on the accursed cross. It's not a self-help book that God has given to us, but God has given us Himself, a Savior in Himself. This incarnation delivers us from a pessimistic and hopeless view of life. It delivers us from that sentimental approach also to modern life that says, We can do it. The Incarnation gives us a very realistic view of the seriousness of our problem and of the power of God's remedy. The Incarnation says, the answer must come from man and for man, though man cannot save himself by himself. Hence the Incarnation. So uh, one uh, historian again put it this way. Uh, Jesus himself and the apostles after him We're working with a new definition and concept of salvation. One that assumed every individual person's eternal destiny depended on a response to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. And that self-revelation was the very embodiment of God's love. God had reached out to humanity in love for reconciliation and relationship with the divine. And he did this in the person of Jesus Christ, end quote. uh, Christ coming into the world has changed forever the way that we think about salvation in the biggest sense of that term. What's wrong with us and and how we could fix it, uh, how the Lord can fix it. And uh, third and finally, a little more concretely, Christ has forever changed the way that we understand love love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Um, I once heard a man say that if there's a God, he says, "I, I can't believe he'd be interested in us. You know, why would God be interested in people? And my first thought was, how does that philosophy affect your life? Um, Should God regard humanity as not worthy of any notice whatsoever? That is what the Stoics thought. And that's how the ancient world lived, generally speaking. I mean, they were afraid of offending the gods, but that didn't mean that they were doing righteousness or showing love, anything like that. The world without Christianity was, as two historians now here put it, a world without food pantries, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, orphanages, hostels, hospice, or even hospitals. Christians literally invented these things because they changed the way that we understood love. They had love for family, they had love for friends, they even had love for country. But they, they didn't have, well, the, the uh, uh, ancient uh, uh, word that's uh, come into our older translations is charity. By that, we sometimes think of um, philanthropy. That's not the idea. It's a practical love. Christians invented all those things and many more because Christ's Changed the world by teaching us practical love in a new way, something that was never known or understood. Um, The poor in the ancient world were fed from time to time, at least in some ancient civilizations. Even the Romans later had bread and circuses, right? They were fed, though they were never loved for God's sake. People sponsored Public works in those days, and they gained honor for their families. They had something like philanthropy, but they didn't have anything like charity. Big difference. But when Jesus came into the world, this true God from true God, begotten, not made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became man, and for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered and died and was buried and so forth. Christ's incarnation suddenly invested human life with the greatest conceivable dignity and honor. The God who made us in His image at the beginning forever then dignified human nature by taking that to Himself in Jesus Christ and in love. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many and it was a revolution in the world. You cannot fathom what this brought to the world. In the Roman Empire, uh, indicated before, the poor, the needy, the helpless, largely ignored, left to fend for themselves. I'd like to give you one example of this change that Christ brought um, in one location, a very important location in the history of the church as things began to develop and this model was copied, but Basil the Great, or Basil, uh, Bishop of Caesarea, um, he had some uh, contributions that he wanted to put to good use, and so he constructed what the locals called the new city there in Caesarea. It was a little campus, a little complex of facilities that would serve a variety of needs, where there was a soup kitchen to feed the hungry, poor houses, to shelter the homeless, a trade school to help beggars out of poverty, and dependence, a hostel to give uh, shelter to needy travelers and provide them an alternative to the notoriously immoral wayside inns. The elderly and the dying were cared for in a hospital ward with nursing care and there was uh, daily distribution of food to the uh, widows in need. Uh, People, people just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe their eyes. They'd never seen anything like this. They hadn't seen one thing like this, much less this, this whole complex. What had come into the world? Why would you do this for, for them? The greatest conceivable proof of the dignity and the honor of mankind, the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the universe has happened for us No greater elevation of the value of a human life could be imagined than that God the Son, through whom the heavens and the earth were made, would take to Himself forever a human nature and out of love shed His life's blood to give us everlasting life in Him. This was something new and all those things that we now enjoy or the modern forms of those things have come as a revolution to the world. And it wasn't just a matter of having some organized good works as a bishop could coordinate several congregations in a city and do some major things like that. It wasn't just organized good works. Justin Martyr writes this in his first apology, second century, right? The the church has nothing at this point. We who were once slaves of lust now have our chief joy in a godly life. We who once loved gain above everything else, now we give our possessions for the common good and distribute to everyone who has needy. Once we hated and murdered one another, and we wouldn't receive into our houses people of a foreign clime because they had different customs for our own. Now, since the appearance of Christ... We permit them to be our guests. We pray for our enemies. We strive to convince those who hate us unjustly so that living according to the glorious teaching of Christ, they may obtain the joyful hope of a participation in the blessings which are prepared for us by God Almighty. Christ has commanded us to use no violence and to return no evil for evil. He exhorted us by our patience and gentleness to convert all men in many among us, we can show you that this has actually been done, that they have been changed from violent and tyrannical men and subdued, while they have neither observed the steadfast endurance, uh, well, I'm sorry, while they have either observed the steadfast endurance of their Christian neighbors, or have been acquainted with the extraordinarily, extraordinary patience of Christian travelers, suffering injustice, or have seen the conduct of the Christian under various circumstances." In the intercourses of life, end quote sorry for the long quote there, but Justin Martyr's point is, look, it, it, it just it changed the world by the thousands, and the more people that were changed, the more thousands that were changed. in, in general, the ancient world had love, brotherly love, love for family, uh, yeah again, the uh, familial kind of love. It had the uh, friendship kind of love, and you love me, and I'll do, love you, and I'll do these things for you. Even love for country. But, but by this, we have known love, that Christ has come into the world for us. And that love that he taught us changed the world in a million ways. In general, pagan religion led people to be religious but not spiritual. Spiritual. Religious, but not spiritual. In other words, they did follow religious practices, but they didn't feel that they had to order their lives in a certain way as part of their worship. Ancient religion was about honoring the gods and dividing the future to get some prosperity and success and avoid some tragedy or unpleasantness. People showed that they were good citizens by observing cultural norms, and they avoided bringing shame on their family. But Christianity changed this altogether. Religion was no longer what's good for you. Religion became what's good for your neighbor. And a major portion of early Christian teaching of new converts was to reorient their lives. Christians, writes one historian, distinguish themselves from their pagan neighbors. By the differences in their lifestyle, morality was one of the markers of the Christian, but the expectations were extended to include the ministry of Christians to all people. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And they also, embracing that love, went into the world to bring his life and salvation. In conclusion, this was life when Christ was born. A cold world, um, prolonged multiple wars, going in the Middle East, waves of immigrants crossing their borders, increasing political polarization, often with religious overtones, prolonged economic recession, um, relative peace, at least, was theirs. No no, uh, great battles being fought. In those days, Christianity came into the world only to meet with official persecution. It didn't even enjoy a legal existence, and yet it still won the world. In the most difficult of circumstances, Christians profoundly changed the world from the better because they understood what it meant to know God and His salvation, and His love. Like the ancient world, we can find ourselves living in an entertainment culture that panders to the less noble aspects of human life and the lower interests of man's mind and heart. Man is, in the view of many, just another animal. And man is being reduced to something smaller and smaller. They have nothing to compare it to, perhaps. But when man loses sight of God, he begins to shrink. I've mentioned it before. And the longer he thinks about himself without reference to God, the smaller he becomes. In the final analysis, life in this world becomes a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It was from that world in life that Christ has come to deliver us. For man was meant for higher things. Being made in the likeness of God for fellowship with God, to know and enjoy His love. We are given powers like God's own, precisely so that we might have some grasp of God and His glory, appreciate the true communion that we have with Him, and enjoy the fellowship of love that comes from knowing Him. And so we find in Christ the greatest gift ever given to the world, the greatest sacrifice ever made, the greatest miracle ever performed has been done for us. And so we sing, not the commonly sung verse, but this also from Wesley's hymn. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark, the, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how great would be this world's uh, misery still had not Christ been born And how thankful we are to be on this side of that great Advent. We long for the fulfillment of these things when that perfection of knowing and of loving you, of enjoying your salvation, of being perfected in your love forever might fill all things in our world. We pray once again, Holy Spirit, as we make these prayers and intercessions, uh, grant us that same hope and expectation of the day in which we ourselves would be um, uh, freed from that uh, bondage to corruption to decay, and the glorious liberty of the children of God should be ours. We pray, our Father in heaven, that you would give us that uh, faith that is of grace, that we might lay hold of these things which are our inheritance, and that these things would be not just a matter of history in the distant past, but of the present and living experience, the life and the love of your people now today. We pray that you would bless us as the children of Abraham, those through whom these promises have been uh, uh, fulfilled in our day. We pray that we too should be the blessing to the world as you have called us to be, and that uh, you would raise up generation after generation to carry these things forward until they have their perfect fulfillment in our Lord.